All right, chapter two, level five, leadership. Quote by Harry S. Truman. You can accomplish anything in life, provided that you do not mind who gets the credit. That's a pretty good one. I wonder about these quotes, though. These types of quotes, like, they were probably said in context to something. <clears throat> like, he was probably responding to a specific situation. Um, I don't think all of these quotes that we know were necessarily stated as just, like, aphorisms. That they were just like, well, let me give you a piece of wisdom apropos of nothing. No, he's probably talking shit about someone. <clears throat> In 1971, a seemingly ordinary man named Darwin E. Smith became chief executive of Kimberly Clark, a stodgy old paper company whose stock had fallen 36% behind the general market over the previous 20 years. Smith, the company's mild-mannered in-house lawyer, wasn't so sure the board had made the right choice. A feeling further reinforced when a director pulled Smith aside and reminded him <coughs> that he lacked some of the qualifications for the position. But CEO he was, and CEO he remained for 20 years. There's no story behind that. Behind someone just being like, hey, hey, you're not qualified for this. All right, get out there. What a 20 years it was. In that period, Smith created a stunning transformation, turning Kimberly Clark into the leading paper-based consumer products company in the world. Under his stewardship, Kimberly Clark generated cumulative stock returns 4.1 times the general market, handily beating its direct rivals Scott Paper and Procter & Gamble. Hey, Scott Paper! <coughs> I didn't realize that was like a, an inside joke on The Office. I mean, not an inside joke, but a, a joke more esoteric than someone like me would get. And outperforming such venerable companies as Coca-Cola, Hewlett-Packard, 3M, and General Electric. It was an impressive performance. One of the best examples in the 20th century of taking a good company and making it great. Uh, it was an impressive performance, one of the best examples in the 20th century, taking a good company and making it great. Yet few people, even ardent students of management and corporate history, know anything about Darwin Smith. He probably would have liked it that way. A man who carried no airs of self-importance, Smith found his favorite companionship among plumbers and electricians and spent his vacations rumbling around his Wisconsin farm in the cab of a backhoe, digging holes and moving rocks. He was a lawyer first, right? He never cultivated hero status or executive celebrity status. When a journalist asked him to describe his management style, Smith, dressed unfashionably like a farm boy wearing his first suit bought at J.C. Penney, just stared back from the other side of his nerdy-looking black-rimmed glasses. After a long, uncomfortable silence, he said simply, Eccentric. The Wall Street Journal did not write a splashy feature on Darwin Smith. But if you were to think of Darwin Smith as somehow meek or soft, you would be terribly mistaken. His awkward shyness and lack of pretense was coupled with a fierce, even stoic, resolve toward life. Smith grew up as a poor Indiana farm boy, <clears throat> putting himself through college by working the day shift at International Harvester and attending Indiana University at night. One day, he lost part of a finger on the job. The story goes that he went to class that evening and returned to work the next day. Well, that might be a bit of an exaggeration. He clearly did not let a lost finger slow down his progress toward graduation. 
He kept working full-time, he kept going to class at night, and he earned admission to Harvard Law School. Later in life, two months after becoming CEO, doctors diagnosed Smith with nose and throat cancer, predicting he had less than a year to live. He informed the board, but made it clear that he was not dead yet and had no plans to die anytime soon. Smith held fully to his demanding work schedule while commuting weekly from Wisconsin to Houston for radiation therapy and lived 25 more years, most of them as CEO. Smith brought that same ferocious resolve to rebuilding Kimberly-Clark, especially when he made the most dramatic decision in the company's history, sell the mills. Shortly after he became CEO, Smith and his team had concluded that the traditional core business, coded paper, was doomed to mediocrity. Its economics were bad and the competition weak. But they reasoned, if Kimberly-Clark thrust itself into the fire of the consumer paper products industry, world-class competition like Procter & Gamble would force it to achieve greatness or perish. And here's a little graph of Kimberly-Clark's cumulative value of $1 invested from 1951 to 1971. It went from $1 to $10, it looks like. For what that's worth. Uh, And then the next 20 years, it went from that to $40. Oh, here's a little graph that's going to tell us uh, stuff that's going to come up. Level 1. Highly capable individual. Makes productive contributions through talent, knowledge, skills, and good work habits. Level 2. Contributing team member. Contributes individual capabilities to the achievement of group objectives and works effectively with others in a group. Level 3. Competent Manager. Organizes people and resources toward the effective and efficient pursuit of predetermined objectives. Level 4. Effective Leader. Catalyzes commitment to and vigorous pursuit of a clear and compelling vision, stimulating higher performance standards. Level 5. Executive. Builds enduring greatness through a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. I don't know why they just threw that in the middle of this story, but... So, like the general who burned the boats upon landing, leaving only one option, succeed or die, Smith announced the decision to sell the mills in what one board member called the gutsiest move he'd ever seen a CEO make. Sell even the mill in Kimberley, Wisconsin, and throw all the proceeds into the consumer business, investing in brands like Huggies and Kleenex. The business media called the move stupid, and a Wall Street analyst downgraded the stock. Smith never wavered. 25 years later, Kimberly Clark owned Scott Paper outright and beat Procter & Gamble in six of eight product categories. In retirement, Smith reflected on his exceptional performance, saying simply, I never stopped trying to become qualified for the job. That's a pretty cool story. Um, He also added... I was supposed to die in like eight weeks, so yeah, I just took a gamble and it worked. Not what we expected. Darwin Smith stands as a classic example of what we came to call a level five leader, an individual who blends extreme personal humility with intense professional will. We found leaders of this type at the helm of every good to great company during the transition era. Like Smith, they were self-effacing individuals who displayed the fierce resolve to do whatever needed to be done to make the company great. Level 5, this is a box aside, Level 5 leaders channel their ego needs away from themselves and into the larger goal of building a great company. It's not that Level 5 leaders have no ego or self-interest. Indeed, they are incredibly ambitious. 
but their ambition is first and foremost for the institution, not themselves. Uh, I don't know. I'm starting to... I mean, how are you operationalizing the self-effacement? I would like to see how that's rated. And was it present in companies that didn't do well either? Isn't that what you're so, what you found so important you needed to overstate that you have to compare it to something? Look, I'm all for self-effacement. I'm all for self-effacement. Uh... But I, I just don't see it always resulting in uh, tangible gains. But anyway, we'll see how that plays out. The term level five refers to the highest level in a hierarchy of executive capabilities that we identified in our research. See the diagram on page 20. We already went over that diagram. While you don't need to move in sequence from level one to level five, it might be possible to fill in some of the lower levels later. Fully developed level 5 leaders embody all five layers of the pyramid. I'm not going to belabor all five levels here. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, I, I bet you are. I bet you are. Um, as levels 1 through 4 are somewhat self-explanatory and are discussed extensively by other authors. This chapter will focus instead on the distinguishing traits of the good to great leaders, namely level 5 traits in contrast to the comparison leaders in our study. But first, please permit a brief digression to set an important context. We were not looking for level 5 leadership or anything like it. In fact, I gave the research team explicit instructions to downplay the role of top executives so that we could avoid the simplistic credit the leader or blame the leader thinking common today. To use an analogy the leader, that leadership is the answer to everything, perspective is the modern equivalent of the God is the answer to everything perspective that held back our scientific understanding of the physical world in the dark ages. Ooh, shots fired. In the 1500s, people ascribed all events they didn't understand to God. Why did the crops fail? God did it. Why did we have an earthquake? God did it. What, hold the plan what holds the planets in place? God. But with the enlightenment, we begin the search for a more scientific understanding. Physics, chemistry, biology, and so forth. Not that we became atheists, but we gained deeper understanding about how the universe ticks. Similarly, every time we attribute everything to leadership, we're no different from people in the 1500s. We're simply admitting our ignorance. Not that we should become leadership atheists. Leadership does matter. But every time we throw our hands up in frustration, reverting back to, well, the answer must be leadership, we prevent ourselves from gaining deeper, more scientific understanding about what makes great companies tick. I like that, but I feel like that preamble is just about to lead into talking about how it's all about the leaders. So, early in the project, I kept insisting, ignore the executives, but the research team kept pushing back, no, there is something consistently unusual about them, we can't ignore them. And I'd respond, but the comparison companies also had leaders, even some great leaders, so what's different? Back and forth, the debate raged. Finally, as should always be the case, the data won. There's so many, like, nerdy white guys who just cheered, the data won! The good to great executives are all cut from the same cloth. It didn't matter whether the company was consumer or industrial, in a crisis or steady state, 
offered services or products. It didn't matter when the transition took place or how big the company was. All the good to great companies had level 5 leadership at the time of transition. Furthermore, the absence of level 5 leadership showed up as a consistent pattern in the comparison companies. Oh, there you go. Given that level 5 leadership cuts against the grain of conventional wisdom, especially the belief that we need larger-than-life saviors with big personalities to transform companies, it's important to note that level 5 is an empirical finding, not an ideological one. I feel like his insight's starting to get a little bit better. Although I, I question the idea that people are all saying we need these big personalities to cause change. I think it's more just those are the people who step up and take credit for things which kind of harkens back to that quote we started the chapter with <clears throat> humility plus will equals level five in other words drawing out a sentence i said earlier into a whole subchapter. level five leaders are a study in duality uh, here comes some examples modest and willful humble and fearless hmm. kept it down too to quickly grasp this concept, think of United States President Abraham Lincoln, one of the few level 5 presidents in U.S. history, who never let his ego get in the way of his primary ambition for the larger cause of an enduring great nation. Yet those who mistook Mr. Lincoln's personal modesty, shy nature, and awkward manner as signs of weakness themselves found they were terribly mistaken. To the scale of 250,000 Confederate and 360,000 Union lives, including Lincoln's own. That's kind of interesting that almost 50% more Union people died. While it might be a bit of a stretch to compare the good to great CEOs to Abraham Lincoln, they did display the same duality. Consider the case of Coleman Mockler, CEO of Gillette from 1975 to 1991. During Mockler's tenure, Gillette faced three attacks that threatened to destroy the company's opportunity for greatness. Two attacks came as hostile takeover bids from Revlon, led by Ronald Perlman. Isn't that the guy who played Hellboy? A cigar-chomping raider with a reputation for breaking apart companies to pay down junk bonds and finance more hostile raids. The third attack came from Coniston Partners, an investment group that bought 5.9% of Gillette stock and initiated a proxy battle to seize control of the board, hoping to sell the company to the highest bidder and pocket a quick gain on their shares. Had Gillette been flipped to a Perlman at the price he offered, share owners would have reaped an instantaneous 44% gain on their stock. Wow. Looking at a 2.3 billion short-term stock profit across 160 million shares, most executives would have capitulated, pocketing millions from flipping their own stock and cashing in on generous golden parachutes. Coleman Mockler did not capitulate, choosing instead to fight for the future greatness of Gillette, even though he himself would have pocketed a substantial sum on his own shares. A quiet and reserved man, always courteous, Mockler had the reputation of a gracious, almost patrician gentleman. Yet those who mistook Mockler's reserved nature for weakness found themselves beaten in the end. In the proxy fight, senior Gillette executives reached out to thousands of individual investors, person by person, phone call by phone call, and won the battle. Now, you might be thinking, but that just sounds like self-serving entrenched management fighting for their interests at the expense of shareholder interests. On the surface, it might look that way, but consider two key facts. First, 
Mockler and his team staked the company's future on huge investments in radically new and technologically advanced systems, later known as Sensor and Mach 3. Radically new and technologically advanced systems, like the Mach 3 Razor. Okay. Had the takeover been successful, these projects would almost certainly have been curtailed or eliminated, and none of us would be shaving with censor. Censor for women or the Mach 3, leaving hundreds of millions of people to a more painful daily day with stubble. Second, at the time of the takeover battle, censor promised significant future profits that were not reflected in the stock price because it was in secret development. With Sensor in mind, the board and Mockler believed that the future value of the shares far exceeded the current price, even with the price premium offered by the Raiders. To sell out would have made short-term share flippers happy, but would have been utterly irresponsible to long-term shareholders. In the end, Mockler and the board were proved right, stunningly so. If a shareholder had accepted the 44% premium offered by Ronald Perlman on October 31st, 1986, and then invested the full amount in the general market for 10 years through the end of 1996, he would have come out three times worse off than a shareholder who had stayed with Mockler and Gillette. That's a kind of a convoluted thing. So, Okay, I see. Then you have to go with the general market because you have to do something with the money, I guess. I don't know. Indeed, the company, its customers, and shareholders would all have been ill-served had Mockler capitulated to the Raiders, pocketed his millions, and retired to a life of leisure. Sadly, Mockler was never able to enjoy the full fruits of his labor. On January 25, 1991, the Gillette team received an advanced copy of the cover of Forbes magazine, which featured an artist's rendition of Mockler standing atop a mountain holding a giant razor above his head in a triumphal pose, while the vanquished languish on the hillsides below. The other executives razzed the publicity-shy Mockler, who had likely declined a request to be photographed for the cover in the first place, amused at seeing him portrayed as a corporate version of Conan the Triumphant. Walking back to his office, minutes after seeing this public acknowledgement of his 16 years of struggle, Mockler crumpled to the floor, struck dead by a massive heart attack. Oh god, that's fucking terrible. Not so much because he didn't get to enjoy it, he obviously wasn't into it. It sounds like the public scrutiny and attention caused him to fucking die. I do not know whether Mockler would have chosen to die in harness, but I am quite confident that he would not have changed his approach as a chief executive. His placid persona hid an inner intensity, a dedication to making anything he touched the best it could possibly be, not just because of what he would get, but because he simply couldn't imagine doing it any other way. It wouldn't have been an option within Coleman Mockler's value system to take the easy path and turn the company over to those who would milk it like a cow, destroying its potential to become great, any more than it would have been an option for Lincoln to sue in peace and lose forever the chance of an enduring great nation. Oh, to sue for peace. <clears throat> to sue like a lawyer sues? Is that a term I'm not familiar with? Or is he just explicitly saying war is the answer? Ambition for the company. Setting up successors for success. When David Maxwell became CEO of Fannie Mae in 1981, like, okay, I feel like it's a little bit... 
he keeps stressing the data, the data, and then like he'll show a graph of how the stock went up. Okay, but then as far as the actual things we're drawing from it, so far at least, now we're just going one by one and like picking out somewhat subjective, like personal type accounts of someone. Um, so the actual lessons that we've been taught so far have not been data supported at all, except insofar as saying, and the company did really well and we can prove it. But this is highly, highly speculative. As much as I kind of like what he's saying, um, he's touting it as like a data-driven thing, and so far it has not lived up to that. When David Maxwell became CEO of Fannie Mae in 1981, the company was losing $1 million every single business day. Over the next nine years, Maxwell transformed Fannie Mae into a high-performance culture that rivaled the best Wall Street firms, earning $4 million every business day and beating the general stock market 3.8 to 1. Oh, well, I do a lot better than losing a $1 million every day. I'd make like a $1 million more than that every day. Maxwell retired while still at the top of his game, feeling that the company would be ill-served if he stayed on too long, and turned the company over to an equally capable successor, Jim Johnson. Shortly thereafter, Maxwell's retirement package, which had grown to be worth $20 million based on Fannie Mae's spectacular performance, became a point of controversy in Congress. Fannie Mae operates under a government charter. Maxwell responded by writing a letter to his successor, in which he expressed concern that the controversy would trigger an adverse reaction in Washington that could jeopardize the future of the company. He then instructed Johnson not to pay him the remaining balance, $5.5 million and asked that the entire amount be contributed to the Fannie Mae Foundation for low-income housing. David Maxwell, like Darwin Smith and Coleman Mockler, exemplified a key trait. Okay, he's probably a good person. Well, that was probably a good thing. But it sounds like he only did that under government scrutiny, so it's very possible he was just scared shitless of going to jail, or some such action. David Maxwell, like Darwin Smith and Coleman Mockler, exemplified a key trait of Level 5 leaders. Ambition first and foremost for the company, and concern for its success, yeah, we get it, rather than your own. Level 5 leaders want to see the company even more successful in the next generation. Comfortable with the idea that most people won't even know the roots of the success? <sighs> okay, yeah. One level 5 leader said, I want to look out for my porch at one of the great companies in the world someday and be able to say, I used to work there. Okay, so it's not entirely not taking credit for it, but in contrast, the comparison leaders, concerned more with their own reputation for personal greatness, often failed to set the company up for success in the next generation. After all, what better testament to your own personal greatness than that the place falls apart after you leave? That's an that's actually a very interesting point. Uh entirely unsupported by anything. But uh that is funny that the more it fucks up after you leave, the more it looks like you were holding it all together. In over three quarters of the comparison companies, we found executives who set their successors up for failure or chose weak successors or both. Okay, set them up for failure. That really needs to be backed up by some sort of defined thing as to what they were doing. Like, that's libel. Like, I feel like if I were one of those executives, I'd be suing him. Some had the biggest dog syndrome. 
They didn't mind other dogs in the kennel as long as they remained the biggest one. Uh, that's not a thing, but uh, one comparison CEO was said to have treated successor candidates the way Henry VIII treated wives. So he fucked them? And then killed them? Consider the case of Rubbermaid, an unsustained comparison company that grew from obscurity to number one on Fortune's annual list of America's most admired companies. And then, is it really called the most admired companies? What a dumb way to go about it. And then, just as quickly, dis disintegrated into such sorry shape that it had to be acquired by Newell to save itself. The architect of this remarkable story, a charismatic and brilliant leader named Stanley Galt, became synonymous in the late 1980s with the success of the company. In 312 articles collected on Rubbermaid, Galt comes through as hard-driving, egocentric executive. In one article, he responds to the accusation of being a tyrant with the statement, Yes, but I'm a sincere tyrant. In another, drawn directly from his own comments on leading the change, the word I appears 44 times. I could lead the charge. I wrote the 12 objectives. I presented and explained the objectives. Whereas the word we appears just 16 times. As in a wee little boy. Galt had every reason to be proud of his executive success. Rubbermaid generated 40 consecutive quarters of earnings growth under his leadership, an impressive performance, and one that deserves respect. But, and this is the key point, Galt did not leave behind a company that would be great without him. His chosen successor lasted only one year on the job, and the next in line faced a management team so shallow that he had to temporarily shoulder four jobs while scrambling to identify a new number two executive. Galt's successors found themselves struggling, not only with a management void, but also with strategic voids that would eventually bring the company to its knees. Of course, you might say, yes, Rubbermaid fell apart after Galt, but that just proves his personal greatness as a leader. Exactly! Galt was indeed a tremendous level 4 leader, perhaps one of the best in the last 50 years, but he was not a level 5 leader, and that is one key reason why Rubbermaid went from good to great for a brief shining moment, and then, just as quickly, went from great to irrelevant. Okay, so, in all of that, you're just essentially saying the thing that differentiates someone who's a good leader from a good leader that will cause enduring success is one that tries to cause enduring success which i agree uh a compelling modesty it's kind of a great title actually a compelling modesty a biography of a queer little man. A compelling modesty. In contrast to the very eye-centric style of the comparison leaders, we were struck by how good, how the good-to-great leaders didn't talk about themselves. During interviews with the good-to-great leaders, they'd talk about the company and the contributions of other executives as long as we'd like, but would deflect discussion about their own contributions. When pressed to talk about themselves, they'd say things like, I hope I'm not sounding like a big shot, or if the board hadn't picked such great successors, you probably wouldn't be talking with me today, or did I have a lot to do with it? Oh, that sounds so self-serving. <laughs> All right, I just don't, I don't know. Uh, I'm not saying he's like lying about the quotes, but that just doesn't sound like 
CEOs. Uh, or I don't think I take much credit. Now, that's, I mean, no. Maybe they just don't want to piss people off. Uh, or maybe it's because as much as I'm starting to come around, it's still not a, you know, uh, it's not a well scientifically designed study by any means. So you may very well have said something like, now one thing I've noticed is that the CEOs of these companies are all very modest. Anyway, going into our interview, <laughs> I mean, like, I'm sure you, you, uh, tipped them to that thing at least a little bit like what i'm saying is it'd be different if you were specifically writing a book about how rock star ceos make or break a company you'd get different types of quotes um or there are plenty of people in this company who could do my job better than i do i just maybe plenty of people who could do it as well as i do but better than me i just that's doesn't why uh, I don't see people doing that. Uh, it wasn't just false modesty. Those who worked with or wrote about the good to great leaders continually word, used words like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understated, did not believe his own clippings, and so forth. Board member Jim Havlasek described Ken Iverson, the CEO who oversaw Nucor's transformation from near bankruptcy to one of the most successful steel companies in the world. All right, so another personal opinion on something. Ken is a very modest and humble man. <laughs> uh, I've never known a person as successful in doing what he's done that's as modest. And I work for a lot of CEOs of large companies. Oh, so you must be an expert on people who are very modest. And that's true in his private life as well. The simplicity of him. I mean, little things like he always gets his dog at the local pound. Aww. And he has a simple house that he's lived in for ages. He only has a carport, and he complained to me one day about how he had to use his credit card to scrape the frost off his windows, and he broke the credit card. You know, Ken, there's a solution for it. Enclose your carport. And he said, ah, heck, it isn't that big of a deal. He's that humble and simple. Ah, heck. It sounds like you're characterizing him as stupid. Maybe what we're seeing here is the George W. Bush syndrome, whereas all these people are being propped up by puppet masters behind the scenes, and they take some, some uh, innocent-looking farm boy to be the public face um, to project... Uh, humility and not look like a greedy corporate Dick Cheney. The 11 good to great CEOs... There's, there's plenty of people who could do my job better than me. And it was true. He was a janitor that they made, the C <laughs> they made CEO because they thought the SEC was going to investigate them soon. All right, the 11 good to great CEOs are some of the most remarkable CEOs of the century, given that only 11 companies from the Fortune 500 met the exacting standards of entry into this study. Yet, despite the remarkable results, almost no one ever remarked about them. George Kane, Alan Wurzel, it's just a bunch of names. How many of these extraordinary executives have you heard of? Okay, well, so that proves the point that I don't need to say that. Although one of them is named Cork Walgreen. 
so I, I think I've heard of his family. Also, his name is Cork, which is worth pointing out. When we systematically tabulated all 5,979 articles in the study, we found fewer articles surrounding the transition date for the good to great companies than for the comparisons, by a factor of two. Furthermore, we rarely found articles that focused on the good to great CEOs. Well, as far as the transition, like, they were probably doing things that whoever was writing articles didn't... Re- like, whoever's writing the articles is probably behind the real... Uh, like important things that are like if, if they were that ahead of the curve they wouldn't be writing the articles they'd be leading companies the good to great leaders never wanted to become larger than okay jesus christ we get it can you stop harping on their humility it's a very sort of ironic thing to be doing they never aspired to be put on a pedestal okay they were simply ordinary people quietly producing extraordinary results okay some of the comparison leaders provide a striking contrast. Scott Paper, the comparison company to Kimberly Clark, hired a CEO named Al Dunlap, a man cut from very different cloth than Darwin Smith. Dunlap loudly beat on his own chest, telling anyone who would listen, and many who would prefer not to, about what he had accomplished. Quoted in Business Week about his 19 months atop Scott Paper, he boasted, The Scott story will go down in the annals of American business history and was one of the most successful, quickest turnarounds ever, making other turnarounds pale by comparison. According to Business Week, Dunlap personally accrued $100 million for 603 days of work at Scott Paper. That's roughly $165,000 per day, largely by slashing the workforce, cutting the R&D budget in half, and putting the company on growth steroids in preparation for sale. After selling off the company and pocketing his quick millions, Denlap wrote a book about himself in which he trumpeted his nickname Rambo in Pinstripes. I love the Rambo movies, he wrote. (laughs) Here's a guy who has zero chance of success and always wins. Rambo goes into situations against all odds, expecting to get his brains blown out. But he doesn't. At the end of the day, he succeeds. He gets rid of the bad guys. He creates peace at a war. That's what I do, too. Darwin Smith may have enjoyed the mindless Rambo movies as well, but I suspect he never walked out of a theater and said to his wife, You know, I really relate to the Rambo character. He reminds me of me. (laughs) That's pretty funny. A box decide. Granted, the Scott Paper story is one of the most dramatic in our study, but it's not an isolated case. In over two-thirds of the comparison cases, we noted the presence of a gargantuan personal ego that contributed to the demise or continued mediocrity of the company. Well, I mean, I think that much sounds true. Like, there is a lot of personal gain to be made by doing things that are going to temporarily boost your stock options like if you just lay off a bunch of people you save a bunch of money but it's obviously going to be bad in the long term when you need those people um so i think it's a good point but we probably don't need to harp on it anymore because once you understand that it's it's pretty uh self-evident that you can sell off a bunch of shit make a bunch of money and then leave And it's not going to be as good for the company as if you consider long-term growth. An important lesson, but a relatively simple concept. 
we found this pattern pattern particularly <laughs> it's very simple anyway we found this pattern get it because i'm dumb uh, we found this pattern particularly strong in the unsustained comparisons, cases where the company would show a leap in performance under a talented yet egocentric leader, only to decline in later years. Lee Iacocca, for example, saved Chrysler from the brink of catastrophe, performing one of the most celebrated and deservedly so turnarounds in American business history. Chrysler rose to a height of 2.9 times the market at a point about halfway through his tenure. Then, however, he diverted his attention to making himself one of the most celebrated CEOs in American business. Investors, Business Daily, and the Wall Street Journal chronicled how Iacocca appeared regularly on talk shows like Today and Larry King Live, personally starred in over 80 commercials, entertained the idea of running for president, quoted at one point saying, Running Kleisler has been a bigger job than running the country. I could handle the national economy in six months, and widely promoted his autobiography. The book, Iacocca, sold 7 million copies and elevated him to rock star status, leading him to be mobbed by thousands of cheering fans upon his arrival in Japan. Iacocca's personal stock soared, but in the second half of his tenure, Chrysler's stock fell 31% behind the general market. I mean, that's a good example. He stayed on, so it's a perfect example. Bit belabored, but... Sadly, Iacocca had trouble leaving center stage and letting go of the perks of executive kingship. He's postponed his retirement so many times that insiders at Chrysler began to joke that Iacocca stood for, I am chairman of Chrysler Corporation always. And when he did finally retire, he demanded that the board continue to provide a private jet and stock options. Later, he joined forces with noted takeover artist Kirk Kirkerin to launch a hostile takeover bid for Chrysler. Chrysler experienced a brief return to glory in the five years after Iacocca's retirement, but the company's underlying weaknesses eventually led to a buyout by German carmaker Daimler-Benz. Certainly, the demise of Chrysler as a standalone company does not rest entirely on Iacocca's shoulders. The next-generation management made the fatal decision to sell the company to the Germans. But the fact remains, Iacocca's brilliant turnaround in the early 80s did not prove to be sustained, and Chrysler failed to become an enduring great company. I mean, I think the real thing to take from this is that... See, the thing is, people who are just out for themselves aren't going to care about this revelation he's making. He's just spelling out what we kind of already intrinsically know but someone who doesn't care about the company and just wants personal attention and wealth they're gonna read this and be like yeah that's exact duh and that's then you keep celebrating me in the media so it keeps working this is exactly what i'm gonna keep doing i might even run for president as ayakoka and others have said Unwavering resolve to do what must be done. Sometimes a CEO must murder a man with his bare hands. It is very important to grasp that level 5 leadership is not just about humility and modesty. Oh great, a fucking plane's going by. I'm trying to record over here. Yeah, take your time. I'm only trying to record a podcast. Fucking assholes. Fucking asshole planes. It's very important to grasp that level 5 leadership is not just about humility and modesty. <laughs> yeah, that's...
It's equally about ferocious resolve and almost stoic determination to do whatever needs to be done to make the company great. I'm 50% inspired by that and 50% want to take a nap. Indeed, we debated for a long time on the research team about how to describe the good to great leaders. Initially, we penciled in terms like selfless executive and servant leader. That sounds vaguely defensive, but members of the team violently objected to these characterizations. We initially used terms like Negro leader or less than me person who talks. No, no, it didn't work. I'm sorry, that didn't work out. Uh, those labels don't ring true, said Anthony Chiricos. It makes them sound weak or meek, but that's not the way I think about Darwin Smith or Coleman Mockler. They would do almost anything to make the company great. Then Eve Lee suggested, why don't we just call them level five leaders? If we put a label like selfless or servant on them, people will get entirely the wrong idea. We need to get people to engage with the whole concept to see both sides of the coin. If you only get the humility side, you miss the whole idea. Yeah, I think that's this Eve Lee sounds pretty smart, and I like that he's giving her credit. And I'm starting to like this. I mean, it still kind of sucks, but uh, if this was like a PowerPoint, it might be like really helpful. Level 5 leaders are fanatically driven, infected with an incurable need to produce results. They will sell the mills or fire their brother if that's what it takes to make the company great. Okay, so if you're really determined, it helps you succeed. Yeah, that's probably true. When George came... Get ready for some data-driven, science-based insights. When George Kane became CEO of Abbott Laboratories, it sat in the bottom quartile of the pharmaceutical industry, meaning the bottom 25%, a drowsy enterprise that had lived for years off its cash cow, erythromycin. Ooh, erythromycin, I believe that's what they used to treat Legionnaire's disease um, in that show we watched. Kane didn't have an inspiring personality to galvanize the company, but he had something much more powerful. A huge dick. No. Inspired standards. He could not stand mediocrity in any form and was utterly intolerant of anyone who would accept the idea that good is good enough. Cain then set out to destroy one of the key causes of Abbott's mediocrity, nepotism. Systematically rebuilding both the board and the executive team with the best people he could find, Cain made it clear that neither family ties nor length of tenure would have anything to do with whether you held a key position in the company. If you didn't have the capacity to become the best executive in the industry in your span of responsibility, you'd lose your paycheck. I could see how that would be a good strategy. Make people uh, be accountable for what they do and uh, be qualified for their jobs. That's... Unfortunately, it is a novel concept, but uh, definitely not something I'm surprised worked out. Such rigorous rebuilding might be expected from an outsider brought in to turn the company around, but Kane was an 18-year-old veteran insider and a family member, the son of a previous Abbott president. Oh. <laughs> All right, so, I mean, you can't knock him for doing it, but he's it sounds like, I mean, there's a clear, like, psychological thing going on if he's specifically going after nepotism, where he's just, like, really feels like he has to prove himself, and that's what's motivating him. I got here not because I'm the son. It just is by chance that I'm the son. I'm going to prove it. 
I'm going to fire my brother. Holiday gatherings were probably tense for a few years in the Kane clan. In quotes, sorry I had to fire you. Want another slice of turkey? In the end, though, family members... That was not my joke. That was his joke, by the way. In the end, though, family members were quite pleased with the performance of their stock. (laughs) Well, I'm upset you fired your brother, but uh, my stock portfolio has uh, never looked better, so good job. For Keynes set in motion a profitable growth machine that from its transition date in 74 to 2000 created shareholder returns that beat the market 4.5 to 1, handily outperforming industry superstars Merck and Pfizer. Upjohn, the direct comparison company to Abbott, also had family leadership during the same era as George Kane. Unlike George Kane, Upjohn's CEO never showed the same resolve to break the mediocrity of nepotism. By the time Abbott had filled all key seats with the best people, regardless of family background, Upjohn still had B-level family members holding key positions. Virtually identical companies with identical stock charts up to the point of transition, Upjohn then fell 89% behind Abbott over the next 21 years before capitulating in a merger to Pharmacia in 1995. As an interesting aside, oh, now you got something to live up to. Darwin Smith, Coleman Mockler, and George Kane came from inside the company. Stanley Galt, Al Dunlap, and Lee Iacocca rode in as saviors from the outside, trumpets blaring. This reflects a more systematic finding from our study. The evidence does not support the idea that you need an outside leader to come in and shake up the place to go from good to great. In fact, going for a high-profile outside change agent is negatively correlated with a sustained transformation from good to great. I mean, that makes sense, but I don't think any company, despite the fact that this sold 3 million copies, um, they don't seem to uh, either know and read it or they just don't care. 10 out of 11 good-to-great CEOs came from inside the company, three of them by family inheritance. (laughs) Well, okay, I mean, the comparison companies turned to outsiders with six times greater frequency, yet they failed to produce sustained great results. You're kind of saying two contrary things there, but I guess the idea is promote from within, just not too far within, except for the 27% of whatever, where it was literally by family inheritance. A superb example of insider... Hold on, let's see what that actually is. 3 divided by 11. Oh, what do you know? It's fucking 27.27%. That's right, I'm a regular Lee Iacocca, bragging about my skills. A superb example of insider-driven change comes from Charles L. Cork Walgreen, 3D. I, su- I think that must <laughs> that must supposed to be the third. That's really funny. Who transformed Dowdy Walgreens into a company that outperformed stock market by over 15 times from the end of 75 to January 1st, 2000. After years of dialogue and debate within his executive team about Walgreens' food service operations, Quark sensed that the team had finally reached a watershed point of clarity and understanding. Walgreens' brightest future lay in convenient drugstores, not food service. Huh, they used to be food service. Dan Jornt, who succeeded Walgreens as CEO in 1998, described what happened next. And with that cliffhanger, I will leave you until tomorrow. What's he going to say? 
And by the way, I'm coming back to record this. I just checked. We are 8% of the way through the book. So not bad, but also actually, as I suspected with these type of books, when I checked the index at the back, it's even more than I thought. I thought it would be like maybe 8% additional shit at the back, but it's like 30%. So we're like 8 out of 70 done. Ah, shit, that would have been a good... That's uh, like 12%. We're like 12% done. 